This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Hired. If you're a developer, designer, or product manager who's looking for a new opportunity, head over to Hired's website and create a profile to start receiving offers from companies who need what you do. If you accept a job through Hired, you'll receive a $2,000 signing bonus, and if you sign up through Hired.com slash Radio, they'll double that signing bonus to 4000 bucks. So thanks again to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio podcast where I talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration. I'm Adam Wathen, as always, and today I'm here with a fellow podcast host, Dave Marshall. How's it going, Dave? I'm going quite well, thank you, Adam. Awesome. Thanks for uh, taking the time to do this with me, especially uh, across the pond. (laughs) Uh, No worries at all. Uh, So do you mind just quickly introducing yourself for anyone who doesn't know who you are? Yeah, so my name is Dave Marshall. Um, I've been a programmer for about 12 years now professionally. I, I work in, I'm from the UK. I work for a company who own a few web properties, but one of our biggest ones is called childcare.co.uk. Um, I sort of, I'm most of my work is in PHP. I'm, I'm quite, I won't say heavily involved in the community, but I, I do try and dip my toes in now and then. And um, there are a couple of open source projects that I contribute to. Uh, Mockery is the biggest, and I try to get involved with Silex as much as I can as well. Awesome, cool. Uh, so one thing that would be interesting to talk about is actually uh, working on Mockery itself, because that's a tool that I think a lot of PHP developers uh, use, myself included. And I know you've been working on some cool stuff uh, for the last little while, especially as you guys are working towards a 1.0 uh, release. So do you mind talking about maybe some of the uh, interesting things that you've been working on on Mockery? Well, it's kind of taken a bit of a, a backward step recently. Um one of the things like mockery is is actually really quite established in in the PHP community, but we haven't had a, a 1.0 release. And um, for quite a while, I was planning on doing some fairly big uh, sort of user interface changes or the API changes for a 1.0. But having discussed it with a few people, I've actually sort of backtracked on that a little bit now. And I, I think 1.0 would be good to to get out the door as it kind of as the API is now. Uh, without changing it for a lot of the existing user base. Uh, so what I've actually been working on is probably going to be more like something like Mockery 2.0, which does mean it might be somewhat further down the line. But what, what I've been doing has actually changed the API quite a bit in places. Uh, so it's probably not such a bad thing because we might upset quite a few users if we did that you know, for 1.0. Yeah, for sure. I know like some of the stuff that you were working on or talking about working on in the past was kind of creating a more explicit like doubling interface. So right now, like if you want to create a mock or a stub or, or anything in Mockery, you uh, as far as Mockery is concerned, you're creating a mock, right? And every object that comes back is is essentially the same thing and you can set all sorts of different expectations on it. But a common thing that I've found I have to explain a lot of the time when I'm uh, going over a test with someone or trying to show someone how to test or trying to show someone how to use mockery is to kind of get their head around the idea that, you know, even though we're asking for a mock in the code, maybe we're actually creating a stub or something like that. And I I know that was something that you were working on. Is that something that you're thinking of for the 2.0 release then? That's like one of those interface changes? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, one thing I have considered for a 1.0 release would just to be to create an alias method for the mock method that is double basically because because that mock method does give you back just a mockery double that you can change yourself you can configure yourself to be a stub it can be a a mock it can be a spy uh, even a even a dummy if you if you'd like and 
so I was thinking maybe an alias for to just an alias method that says a, a double that just literally internally calls mock. At least that would introduce it for 1.0. And then for 2.0, I would like to have methods. I'd pro- Part of me would like to keep a double method that just gives you back something that you can configure to your heart's content. But I, was, I would also like to see individual methods. So you can create a stub, you can create a mock, you can create a spy, you can create a, a dummy. You know, it's all about revealing intent in the test. You know, this collaborator, I intend to use it as a stub. You know, it will only ever receive queries. It will not receive commands. And you will not be able to verify how many times those queries were called, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. Yeah, so, that's yeah. that's interesting for sure. One thing that that kind of brings up for me is I would like to get your opinion on this because this is something I've run into in the past where, you know, people will talk about uh, how different types of test doubles kind of fall into different categories. And maybe that's something that we can kind of get into in a little bit more detail for anyone who's interested in learning about that who isn't already familiar. But I've found myself in situations before where sometimes I have a collaborator that I need to use as both a stub and a mock in the sense that I need to query something from it. And then maybe based on that information I get back with that combined with some other information that I have in that situation, I need to send that same object a, a command. And it's had me thinking in the past that maybe it's not so much that the test double itself is a stub or a mock, but kind of each, you know, method that I'm, I'm programming it to be able to work with is the stub or mock. Have you ever thought about that distinction or is that maybe a code smell? No, no, I, I have thought about it and you're absolutely right. In fact, um, I'm not sure what the, the most recent version of RSpec is. Do you know what? Is it 3? Yeah, I think 3.0 came out not too, too long ago. Maybe 3.1 or something went out, or 3.2, or who knows. But Yeah, well, so for RSpec 3, they actually... Now, believe in RSpec 2, they had a mock method to create a mock and a stub method to create... Or was that just for, me- for, for methods? I don't know. But, but basically, I mean, I remember seeing some discussion and... They went to um to create a, a double. They used the word double now, and they stuck with the word double because they wanted to make the distinction that mocking and stubbing happens at the the method level, so the message level in Ruby, if you like, rather than the actual object level. Now I knew about this when I started down this path with mockery, but I was still quite happy to to carry on with this, uh, doing it at the collaborator level as well, if you like, and. Part of me is kind of glad as well because it kind of, I won't say it backfired for Aspect, but I believe um, they actually had to sort of double back on themselves and alongside the, the double creation method, they also have a spy creation method because spy is almost like, uh, well, I think the, the syntax just didn't work. To, to get a spy, you couldn't say double as, well, I guess you'd have to say double as spy or something. And you, at that point, you may as well just be saying spy. So it kind of turns out a little bit weird that you have a method that's double for every type of test double except a spy, which happens to have you know its own constructor. So I, I figure in mockery, having the best of both worlds, we have those methods at the top, which as far as I've been working on it, those creation methods are probably going to be configuring you know, a general form of test double. You know, so implementation-wise under the hood, you'd be getting a very similar kind of object anyway, whichever method you call, but it's just trying to sort of reveal a little bit of intent in the test, but it's optional. How far do you think it makes sense to go with that as far as like, I could kind of see there being two camps, right? There, there would be a group of people who would say, leave it up to the person writing the test to 
use it as a stub or a mock like sure give me like the aliases to ask for it so that my test like reveals the intent a little bit more so i can ask mockery for a, a stub and then i use it as a stub so it's a stub but if i wanted to use it as a mock you know i still could just like leave it up to the person to be responsible for kind of doing it correctly and then there would be the other camp that would say you know if i ask for a stub make sure that you get back an object where it's impossible to set a mock expectation on it or it's impossible to inspect uh, it after the fact like a spy uh, sort of thing I, I don't know what do you think makes sense as far as that goes i, I guess it's all about feeling and you know um, you just gotta you write your test have a look at it and make a decision i should clarify also part of this is not only it's kind of been part of the design process for me as well so at the minute with this project um which i've actually branched off into be it's, its own project at the minute we started off by designing the interfaces so we're simply writing interfaces, no actual implementation code. So at this point, it really made sense to to split those things out. So we created an interface for a stub, you know, and using a stub sort of functionality, you shouldn't be able to set expectations. And then we also created the interface for a mock, the interface for a spy. And then realistically, chances are the actual implementation, the concrete thing that you will be getting when you're using this, could implement all three of those interfaces. But so actually, when we were designing the, the API, the, or the DSL, if you like, to use it, it was actually made a lot of sense for us to split things out and think about it in a, well, interface uh, segregation principle is the uh, the thing we should we were thinking about as we were doing it. So Cool. I know you gave a talk not too long ago on kind of the, the differences between all the different types of test doubles. It'd be interesting to hear kind of your perspective on some of that stuff, because I know people have different definitions of some of these things. And for someone who's kind of getting into it, a lot of this stuff can be a little overwhelming, trying to figure out what the differences between a fake and a dummy and a spy and a mock and, and a stub or whatever. So do you want to maybe talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. Well, Firstly, I mean, when I gave that talk, one of the first things I said was that um, it's all about, you know, we are, everyone has different terminology for different things, and it, it's unavoidable in our line of work, I think. And I never really complain at people. I say I say mock when I mean stub all the time. You know, and we use uh, mock not only as a noun, but as a verbia. So we mock things as well as we have mocks. But it, I think it's really important for people, that, and they should know the differences between the, the different kinds, especially, and the reason why is because of the way it affects how you test. And, you know, you, uh, you had Constantine on the show a few weeks ago talking about the different schools of testing and all the different how those methods and understanding the different types of uh, doubles, you know, plays well into that, you know, whether you're doing uh, sort of the, the London or the Detroit sort of style of tests. Uh, depends you know if you're doing the Detroit stuff you're probably going to be using a lot of fakes whereas the other ones obviously you're going to be using a lot more mocks and stubs so what's a fake so a fake is a is a it's a double or a testable that you and a testable is something uh, is some code or an object that you substitute a, a real object with for use during a test now a fake is um kind of like it it is actually code but it's usually a much more simple version of what you will be using in production. So the the classic example would be rather than a, a database backed repository, you might have an in-memory repository, you know, or, I mean, there's other things as well. I mean, I consider things like um, even using um, a SQL-like database rather than your actual, what you intend to use in production database to be fake. 
although it's kind of different. It's more like a system boundary rather than a, an object boundary within your tests. I've used started to use fakes a lot more recently, and it's been pretty interesting experience because uh, it, it seems like really experienced testers who are really good at testing actually use like less complex mock expectation setups and stub setups and stuff than people who are just getting into it, which seems kind of not what I would expect, right? You would think that uh, someone new to testing would maybe be testing things, more integration testing, more functional testing, and that someone who is really experienced with it would be able to kind of coordinate all these different test doubles and test everything cleanly in isolation. But I, I see it happening in almost the opposite way. And as I get more experience with testing, I'm finding myself using fakes in situations where uh, it gives me a little bit more flexibility to refactor and stuff like that. So for example, I'll use like an in-memory session in a lot of situations instead of like programming my session class to receive certain calls with certain parameters and return certain things when I ask for them back. And it just uh, it decouples me from the implementation a little bit more. Do you see that same sort of thing? Or maybe is it just the people that I'm looking at or learning from? No, I think you're you're absolutely right. So I think with beginners, it's kind of weird. You've got to, like, TDD isn't this, like, uh, I'm, I know I'm jumping into TDD here, but it's not this sort of silver bullet that if you do TDD, your code's going to get better. Or if you can write tests, your code's going to be better. It, it could well be, but the actual design of your code takes, you know, practice and it's, and it's a skill. And as you get better at designing your code, I feel like the designs actually lend themselves to tests that are easier to write, tests that are simple to read, to maintain. Don't use complicated procedures like complicated mocks and stub setups and all those kinds of things because your code's decoupled in the right places. Uh, you know where the right boundaries are and all to, to put those fakes in as necessary or doubles in as necessary. And I think it kind of like it's a, almost like a combinatorial explosion. You know, as you get better, at, as you start writing more tests and get better at writing tests, your code gets better and then actually leads to better tests as well, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So uh, when you're using like a fake instead of a stub, for example, or instead of um, a mock or instead of a spy, are you still thinking of that as like an isolated test? Um, yes, generally. I mean, I... These days, in terms of, for me, an isolated test is if it stays in process, I'm usually quite happy. I mean, that, that, that can be really, you know, very loose because, I mean, I, I can run all of my sort of acceptance tests in one process if I, I wish. But when, I, when I'm in, in process, I mean, it doesn't literally doesn't reach out. It doesn't reach out to the file system. It doesn't reach out to the network. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I consider that isolated enough for me. So a fake that uses uh, memory, for example... Yeah, absolutely. If it was a fake that used, you know, um, flat files instead of a, a database, that's a little less isolated for me and more integrated. Uh, it just because there's more more room for failures and more room for things to go wrong as soon as you're, you know, moving out of the process. Yeah. Do you ever write tests for fakes? <laughs> um, no, I haven't. But so Uncle Bob Martin, he's. Uh, he he talks about this a lot in that he most of the sort of testables he uses he he either writes fakes or he writes hand coded you know mocks and stubs and spies. But um, one of the so one of the stories actually mentioned in that talk was when they first started uh, writing fitness, uh, which is the only app that Uncle Bob ever talks about. Yeah, basically, yeah. 
it's, it's like an acceptance testing tool, but you, you write the test in a wiki and it can execute them, right? And uh, so one of the things they did was early on in the development, they said that the to store these wiki pages, they needed some sort of repository or database or something. And in order to prevent development from slowing down, they wrote a fake, a, a flat file a database. And the idea was that this will get them going. They can carry on writing the test. They can carry on developing these, what they consider to be the core functionality, you know, the actual thing that does the tests and, and you know, the things that make the product valuable. And it got to the point where they felt like the product was nearly there, but they still were running on this flat file database. You know, they wanted to use, they already sort of had this the intention of using something like uh, MySQL, a relational database or something like that. But they actually found that the, the flat file database was pretty good. It worked. Uh, they had tests for it, you know, and uh, I mean, it had benefits as well. Like they could check uh, all of their files into to Git or whatever version control they were using. So they actually shipped version one with what was considered to be a fake for the testing as the actual production database. That's pretty interesting. Kind of on the topic of double still, uh, I'm finding lately that I pretty much never use an actual mock anymore. Like I'm, I always reach for a spy instead. Do you have any opinions on that? Is like, can you think of a situation where you would actually want to use a mock instead of a spy? Now, yes, there are a couple. So let's think of uh, the problems with spies. One thing with spies, they can be a little bit more difficult to debug because with a mock, you are up front explicitly saying what can happen, right? So if that thing doesn't happen, if something slightly different happens, you immediately get notified. So you immediately get an exception with a core stack trace leading you through your code. With a spy, it's slightly different. You yeah, it'll just swallow anything you throw at it, basically. Yep, you get to the end of your test and you just get an exception. Now, the that can be made, the experience can be made better there by a decent uh, output. So, you know, if if the spy was to say, no, I didn't get that call, but I did get this one that looks just like it. Do you see what I mean? So it might be helping you out there, but it's still not perfect. Now I'm racking my brain now to think of what other things. I mean, like, obviously, like the if, if we want to talk about the differences between a mock and a spy, first of all, for maybe anyone who doesn't, doesn't know, the biggest difference, right, is like with a mock, you're setting the expectation before you're actually uh, executing the code that you want to test, right? So uh, if you're setting a mock expectation and you have maybe some other assertions happening in the same test, uh, your test kind of gets a little bit unorganized because you have these mock expectations, which you know are a form of uh, assertion that sit above the actual execution or the actual lines that you want to actually test, and you have some assertions at the bottom. So it's uh, a little disorganized as far as kind of keeping track of like, what are all the things that I'm testing here? It's kind of scattered throughout uh, the test itself. Whereas with a spy, you can you can verify that a method was called at the end of the test instead of expecting that it should be called before you actually run the t- code that you want to test. So your assertions and then like where you inspect the spy to make sure that the methods that you want to get called get called all happen in the same place at the end. But what you're saying about, you know, the spy swallowing anything else that gets thrown at it uh, totally makes sense. I've, I've run into situations where that has actually made my test setup simpler sometimes. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, now if you talk to Steve Freeman on that price about this the guys who wrote the the goose book the growing object oriented software book and kind of like were very involved with the sort of uh, mock object movement if you like and they would say that 
the fact that it, the spies make it easier for you to set up your test is probably something say something about the design of your your code you know if it if you're having to set expectations that you don't really want to expect or you don't really want to have to set up for this test maybe they're just noise you'd consider them just to be noise for the for the actual test you're trying to do they'd probably say that's a smell and it's the your tester trying to tell you something and i think that's that is something I definitely have experienced it, and I think a lot of people would. Um, but I'm kind of at the stage now where I feel like I have experienced it, and I know well enough that I can make a decision and say, you know, yeah, you probably actually, my code probably is trying to tell me something, the tests are trying to tell me something, but I'm happy to take that risk and just use a spy here. Yeah, yeah, it makes, done with it. I think there's a risk there where uh, if if you look at your tests and you think, you know, every single thing that that is hard to set up in a test or or bothers me in a test, if if you take that as like purely objective feedback that you have to react to and you have to make a change to your design to support that, I don't think that is always the uh, best approach to take, right? Because there's a lot of other forces giving you feedback about your design uh, besides your tests. And it's not it's not like all of those are pulling your design in the same direction necessarily either right yeah well i mean it's kind of um if it's if it's feedback that you felt before then you're in a decent enough position to make uh, a decision about that feedback uh, if you're sort of more sort of at the beginning of your tdd journey or your testing journey sometimes that feedback needs exploring it might be that you you take that feedback on board you try and make a change and you get more feedback from you know through that change that you actually the feedback's actually feeling like you made things worse you know you can do that two or three times and then you might think well actually let's just stick with what i've got you know and as soon as you've done that a few times over and over and over you start to get a feel for these things and you get the feedback and sometimes you've been expecting the feedback and you're just happy to take it on the chin you know and skip this one over you know we we know that this design might not be perfect but I'm getting the code coverage I want. I'm getting the the sort of user experience that I want in terms of the, the API I'm designing, if you like. Yeah, it might be difficult to test here, or it might show a bit more difficult uh, usage in these particular situations. But overall, this is the experience I want, or this is the, the API that I want. So let's roll with it. There's one, there's one thing that I really feel like I've learned over the last maybe three or four years. It's a, thing, a stage I think like I've got to. And I think it was Dan North who said this in a tweet, and he said something like, um, you've got to have seen a lot of clean code before you can know clean enough code. And I think that's where I'm at now. I have I feel like I've been down the rabbit hole so many times with some things, and now I've come out the other side, and I can just quite quickly make decisions about some things and make compromises and feel, you know, this is good enough. Let's move on you know, to the next thing. Yeah, totally. It makes sense. Yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes it can be frustrating uh, as someone who's learning this stuff to realize that like there's no uh, substitute for just experience and practice, right? Just with uh, almost anything in life. And I think testing is sometimes, and TDD too, is, is kind of looked at, like you said, as kind of a silver bullet or like a shortcut to trying to like bypass all these years of just seeing different types of things and experiencing different types of pains and it doesn't really work that way <laughs> yeah well it doesn't work that way yet i mean it might be that we just haven't found the the right way to teach it you know a lot of the sort of the most highly regarded people in our industry 
you know I've never put, put a day's like a professional coaching or training in done a, done a day you know doing that in their life you know they're not professional teachers they're professional programmers and it sometimes it really does seem like that way that in our industry some things you've just got to you've got to learn the hard way you know <laughs> but maybe you know maybe there are better ways of learning up there we just don't know it yet yeah, I think that's true. Like, I think there's always going to be, we're always going to find better ways to teach some of this stuff. But I still think that there's some element to it that's just like learning an instrument or something, right? Where you can't teach someone to do it. They just have to practice and practice and practice. Too, that's right. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So kind of related to like the topic of uh, the mocks versus spy stuff and just kind of getting into test organization in general. Uh, there's probably a couple interesting things we could talk about there. Some pair be more advanced ideas than others, but uh, I gave a talk at a user group last night about uh, testing. And one of the questions that someone asked me, which I think is a pretty common question that I'd like to get your input on, are things like, how do you feel about having multiple assertions in a test versus having one assertion in a test? Well, um, I mean that's a it's a loaded question as it is in general, isn't it? I mean, what do you consider an, to be an assertion? When I'm thinking of an assertion, I'm thinking of like a line of code that's using a PHP unit assertion, like asserting two things are the same or asserting something's true. Or so I'm more than happy to have more than one of those per test. I mean, so to me, your assertion is asserting the when you started writing this test, you gave it a name, and that name should be fairly descriptive of the expected outcome of the you know the the action that you're performing now if that expected outcome if you've described it requires more than one line of code to be true then what what, what would you have done what would what else yeah. can you do i've seen people i've seen people like duplicate the test essentially and just yeah. write the each of the assertions as the single assertion in each one and i totally agree that that seems like a complete waste of effort and waste of time you you've, you've wasted effort You've uh, de declarified the intention of the test, you know. So, I mean, a good example, uh, an example I use for this. Okay, so if you are using, um, so we use Doctrine in the PHP world as a, a data mapper, uh, ORM. Now, when you add an entity to the unit of work, you will call a persist method with the entity. So you say, add this entity to the unit of work. And then you will say, flush as in flush this the changes to the database. Now, if I was writing a test for that, I could say it adds it to the ORM and then it commits the changes to the database as two separate tests. But realistically, that's not really something I care about from the outside of the, the system of the test. All I care about is it gets put in the database. Do you know what I mean? So if I was to write two separate tests, just so I could have two, uh, would that, they'd actually be you know mock expectations, you know, one pair test, if you like, so one assertion pair test. I think I've coupled myself to the implementation. I've actually made it less clear what I'm hoping the system under test is going to achieve for me. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I know uh, you've written uh, on your blog about creating like custom assertions that maybe you can wrap up some of these multiple assertions into an assertion with like a more meaningful name. Maybe that's something that we could talk about a little bit too. Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you're doing when you use more than one, you know, a single line assertion. You're creating, you are creating a custom assertion. Now, whether you explicitly pull those multiple lines out into, it can be an object or it could just be a helper method. You know, if you pull those two lines out into 
a helper method, a custom assertion helper method, does that become one assertion? I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, that's one way of uh, cleaning up sort of duplication in your tests. Uh, you can have custom assertions which do things um, like, you know, just call, uh, assert things have happened. Well, you mentioned uh, writing tests for fakes earlier. Writing tests for custom assertions is something you can, you could definitely do if you'd like, um, especially if you're, you're pulling out assertions as objects or something like that, you know, to be external to your current test class or test case. Um, and then there's also a custom verifications as well, which is um, it's like a custom assertion, but you actually also include the the code that executes the system under test as well in the method. So instead of writing assert that user was created, you'd be writing um, verify user gets created, you know, and passing it the data that you'd like to see the user created with. Okay, like. yeah, for sure. Another thing kind of related to that, like multiple assertions per test was uh, like having multiple like test cases per test. So uh, the situation that I've had this come up in is like if you're following like the strict TDD process, right, where you're only writing the minimal amount of code necessary to pass whatever the test that you've written is, a lot of the time you need to write another test case that's extremely similar to the first one with just slightly different input that forces you to generalize uh, the implementation, right? And I used to write these as multiple tests, like test it adds two positive integers one, test it adds two positive integers two, right? Which just felt really, really stupid to me. Um, and lately I've been starting to just kind of bundle those up inside like one test function in, in my unit testing framework. You know what I mean? So I'll have like the setup and the execution and the assertions and then like a couple blank lines and then another set of those and just for maybe like the three cases that were necessary to generalize the implementation. Do you have any strong opinions about that sort of approach? Uh, none at all. I mean, I, you'll find me very, very low on the strong opinions. Um, just because I, 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 I try and be as flexible as I can in these things and I mean, what you just described there, there, I mean, there are two levels to that. The first level is that when you're doing TDD, you know, the, the easiest way to get that green light is to, you know, use things like literal, literals, you know. If you're, you know, if you're doing a addition thing and your first test case is one and one and you're expecting two back, you can hard code to return two. Now, there's no way that I would ever go and write another test case, which would be, you know, the same behavior to assert that another a different two set of numbers return, you know, because that's ridiculous, you know. Whereas just writing and adding another line to that single test to actually get past your returning a literal, I think is totally fine and not ridiculous at all. If the sort of usually the, the different parameters aren't the different arguments that you're doing this for, if they are enough to indicate some slightly different behavior then I'd definitely want to pull it out into a different test. Yeah, and I, I think the meaning, well, the reason for that, right, is you want to be able to describe what that behavior is meant to yeah, be with a meaningful test yeah. name. Yeah, and you know when you're, um, you're trying to test um, functions and things and you try and push the boundaries of a parameter? So there's, I think there's a thing, so zero, one. Yeah, just like boundary testing. Lots, Null, yeah. If something so, has like a greater than equal condition, you want to test there, yeah. so that sort of now, thing. Some, sometimes you don't really want to be so explicit in your test test methods. You don't want to have to say it pushes it all the way up to the boundary that we're expecting. You know, if you're expecting this function to 
if you you know if you're doing integer addition and the operating and the the language of your platform you're working on has maximum integers you might want to have that covered in a test somewhere you know that what it'll do with you know an integer that's going to take it above the max int but whether you'd want to actually explicitly say that because i like the idea that you take this test case and you 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 run it with the the tap or whatever you know output report that it has you know and it prints it out all pretty with the ticks next to the name I like to think that you know you, what you get out of there is a nice description of the the API for this system under test. Once you start getting into details like that, you know th- that could be considered like a, a non-functional requirement. So things like that, I might hide away inside another test method somewhere and not worry about it too much, if if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another thing that I've played around with a little bit that you know some people have opinions on is I find like when I was Getting into testing originally, I was very much writing like one test class per object that I had in my system, right? And most of the tests were mapping to methods on that object. And I still find myself doing that a lot lately uh, because it just kind of works out that way. But I'm kind of trying to shift my thinking to stop thinking about uh, I want to test that this method does something, but more I want to test like this feature that this object has to offer. You know what I mean? Yep, absolutely, uh, and that's an indication that you're getting better at you know using tests to design your code or just designing better designing your code in general. And you you find you you start to realize that your 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 uh, objects and your classes don't even have that many uh, public methods anyway. Where you know so your test files would have you know test this method, test this method, test this method, and it's also probably an indication of the the style in which you're developing as well. Whether you're going outside in or middle out or you know inside out once you start going outside in you tend to be writing those kinds of tests where you're describing the features more or i find i do anyway uh, and less about the implementation of the system under test yeah yeah do you um do a lot of testing with other tools other than like php unit um i use behat a lot how would you define a lot um well actually i've been using it less and less recently so when I first started out with Bahat, I was abusing it, at least on this project, I was abusing it a lot for less of the BDD style, you know, we're going to share this gherkin with the stakeholders. And I was using it because I'd started doing a bit of that, uh, but I kind of made the mistake that quite a few people do, I think. I, I coupled quite a lot of my test support code to Bahat, if you like. So when you write a, a line of gherkin, you write... Um, some code to go with it to execute that Gherkin. Now, if I was writing some fixture setup, so a given step in BDD, so given a user exists, I wrote the code to create that user in the testing framework itself, you know, in one of the files it asks you to create. Now, if I was being a bit more clever about that, I might have moved that code to some test support classes or code somewhere else in the system so that I could also use that setup code in my unit test or in my integration test and things like that. So I actually found myself in a situation where I had all this code with my BDD, uh, what should have been sort of acceptance level tests, tests that uh, non-technical folk could understand by reading the Gherkin and stuff. I found I had all this setup and support code in there. So I started using it for things that you probably wouldn't use. So I was describing APIs in there. You know, if I send a post request to this endpoint, then this will happen. Do you see what I mean? Since then, I've got a lot better organizing what I call I call test support code. 
So I, I know you're familiar with things like uh, fixture factories, you know, so I have those sort of under a separate namespace, if you like now, and they're shared by my acceptance test that running with Bahat, they're shared with my integration test that run with PHP unit and that kind of thing. What do you think about, uh, that's an interesting topic on its own. Uh, I, I don't think, I don't hear it come up so much in the PHP world, but in the Ruby world, for sure, there's kind of like a war between fixtures and factories. <laughs> um, do you have any opinions on that? Well, firstly, I, I for it, it was only like until recently that I discovered people like kind of called when when I talk about fixtures with tests, I consider anything that you set up before executing the SUT to be a fixture. So whether it's an in-memory thing or a database or or however you've set it up, I considered that a fixture. But I've recently learned that when people say fixtures versus factory, they mean kind of like having a big sort of like SQL dump or or test database that's already set up. So it's um, what I'd call persistent fixture. Yeah, like just something that's defined basically outside of the test, right? So if you need to test something related to uh, an invoice, maybe, right? And you're testing that uh, you can get the total cost of the invoice. Well, maybe there's an invoice in a fixture file somewhere that you're loading in, and then you're testing that it returns you know, the total of all the items on that invoice that were defined in that external fixture. Yeah, so yeah, as, like, I can... I can like so i think about that like a persistent fixture and i i've had some experience with these and most of that experience was bad um at my last workplace not this current workspace we had quite a, a really sort of data intensive uh database in terms of like you know lots of figures numbers here and there um it was actually uh, sort of gambling related so there's lots of odds and that kind of thing and we used a big fixture for that and it was like a mysql dump in the version control uh, you're constantly having, uh, you know, merge uh, conflicts because the the way you worked it was, you know, you'd load the fixture into the database, you'd add rows or change rows that you'd like, to, you know, to make your test sort of manageable. You'd then dump it back out and commit, commit it to the repo, you know. When you see you've got 10 people in a team doing this, that on a, sort of on, not even on a daily basis, we're on talking like hourly basis, it gets complicated. Uh, just tracking down the data you need is complicated. So my approach tends to be that I have a a persistent fixture that contains usually, I mean, the schema is always in there, you know, the schema from a database. But then I'll also have some sort of standing data that, like a list of countries, that don't really change much for me. Uh, so that can be persistent as a fixture. I'd always have that. And then I'd use factories for everything else. Yeah, that makes sense, right? It's like, it's another one of those things where... There's no, uh, it's not all this or all that. You got to kind of just make a decision based on what makes sense for the maintainability of what you're doing and, and you know, what are the trade-offs involved? Like, I definitely much prefer using factories for something like the example that I was talking about with like an invoice. To me, it doesn't make any sense to be making assertions about something where, uh, you know, the, the data that that assertion is being derived from isn't uh, clear in the test itself, right? So kind of like the the whole benefit of a factory is you can just say, well, this is like the minimum valid version of this object. Define that in a factory somewhere so that in your tests, you can just say, well, uh, this is the only attribute of that object that's relevant to my test. So I'm going to say, give me an object where that attribute is set to this. And it has this additional benefit of removing the attributes that aren't relevant to the test, which 
makes it really clear that, you know, this is the thing that this functionality depends on and it stands out and it doesn't get blended in with, you know, six or seven other fields that aren't relevant uh, to the test itself. So I think there's a lot of benefit there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people talk about, we talked about a bit of duplication in test code earlier. I mean, people talk about, I've, I've seen people say that, you know, they don't like setup and teardown methods because it's two extra places to look. So you not only do you have to look at the test method itself, but you have to look in the setup and the teardown. Now, go again and have have to think about this stuff is in a completely different file somewhere in a usually horrific format that's going to get, you know, it's either XML or CSV or, or SQL dump uh, that's going to get loaded into another system. You know, definitely not. It's a bit just too dysfunctional for me. Yeah, I don't think I really use my setup and teardown methods much uh, when I think about it. Like, I think the only things that I really tend to use setup and teardown for are if I need to, if I'm writing like integration tests that need to like migrate the database or just kind of like set up the circumstances under which the test requires the application to be into function, right? Uh, so if I need to migrate the database in a setup, I'll do that. One example I can think of was we were testing something that needed to uh, like move file uploads around. So uh, we would substitute like an implementation for like the file system class that would write the, the file to like a temp directory in our tests folder, right? Because we didn't want to like stick it in with like anything real in the actual application. So in a teardown function, I would just clear out that folder maybe at the end of every test. So there was no files sitting in there, but definitely not anything related to specifically related to what the test is testing, you know, but maybe that's not really a very clear line sometimes. Definitely not. I mean, there are definitely some things that are global, aren't there? You know, things you've just mentioned uh, where you're changing, you know, system boundaries, you know, or something like uh, running all tests in a database transaction. That kind of thing belongs in setup and teardown. And as soon as you start moving into other things, you end up, setup and teardown can be quite messy because firstly, they're, I mean, this is setup and setup are actually a form of you know refactoring in a way. You could have this code in line in every single every single test method. Obviously, you get a lot of duplication that way. So what we do is we re-extract method. Now there are two ways of doing that. You can extract method implicitly, which would mean using it setup and teardown, so you can't see it, or you can be explicit about it and create the uh, you know an explicit creation method or find a method that you actually have to call specifically from your test method. And you still get concise intent revealing tests without you know without cluttering them up too much with inline setup, but it's quite clear and it's explicit that what's happening fully within that test, and that's what I find myself doing quite a lot these days to try and avoid that setup and teardowns, particularly uh, with complex complex suts because uh, the more complicated the sut, then the more likely you are to have sort of a duplicate setup where that's slightly very slightly different so when you pull out those creation methods you can pass parameters and arguments to them which affect the way the setup happens and again you can keep it intent uh, the intent is clear in the test method whereas doing it in the setup you end up usually some people might set up like two or three different types of user in the setup method you know user a gets used in tests one two and three user b gets set, used in tests four five and six do you see what i mean so yeah i try and avoid them as much as i can but yeah what you're talking about with like extracting a method to simplify setup and using parameters and stuff to be able to make modifications uh 
that you need to. It's kind of a neat idea, I guess, because I can think of situations uh, I've run into on projects in the past where uh, you're adding tests after the fact uh, to something that was poorly designed and there's just a lot to set up, right? Uh, things are depending on things that they probably shouldn't be depending on. A lot of these dependencies are pointing in the wrong direction. And it just it just makes things a, a nightmare to set up. But you'll have like a bunch of dependencies that you have to set up. And, and most of the time, all these dependencies need to be set up the same way. But you'll have a couple tests where maybe you need to throw a spy in there uh, or throw a mock or a stub to do something specific specific for that specific test so i could see how you could extract all that stuff to just a, a different method and then have the ability to say like well override this one dependency with this mock that i programmed inside that same test so that at least the information about uh you know how that specific dependency affects the outcome of the test is local to where you're making the assertions and stuff too yeah absolutely yeah and it it, it leads to less code duplication and of course uh, the less duplication you have in your tests, the usually, although it can be, it, it's a little bit vague, but usually does it gives you at least gives you the feeling that your tests are less coupled to the implementation to the system under test. You know, because if you've got, you know, one point in your code where the, you do this setup or you do this call, it's much better than having that call in several places. You know, when you do change the API for the system under test, you've only got to change it in one particular yeah. place. I ran uh, into that, like, actually, within the last couple of days. I was, especially when you're trying to, like, do something with TDD, right? So I was test driving something where I'm always starting with kind of, like, the simplest case that I want to test for a lot of these things, right? And the simplest case usually means that the object under test doesn't really have any uh, sometimes it w won't have a dependency that it does need for a more complex test so maybe i'll write like four or five tests that are fairly simple that don't rely on this one dependency that uh, more complex situations do rely on and now all of a sudden once i get to those tests and i realize okay well actually i have to inject this to be able to support this functionality now i have to go back to those other tests and pass in uh yeah, that dependency can, either as a, a dummy or yeah. whatever right yeah, yeah, it's annoying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, and at that point, it might be worthwhile saying, "Look, I've I've been burnt by this once. Maybe I should just pull this uh, instantiating the system out and the test out into a helper method, you know, to avoid this in the at least for the the next time." But I mean, again, it's a judgment call. You know, it might you might have made your mind up by now that this is the last thing, last collaborator I'll be adding. So yeah, I've had felt the pain this once. Yeah. Do you have any things that you've learned about testing that you've kind of landed on as like, yes, I always do this in, in terms of, you know, we just were talking about that example of uh, extracting a method to consolidate your object instantiation into one place for some dependency that goes into the thing that you're testing. I'm thinking in that case, that's probably not a hard yes or no always do that but are there any things that you've run into that you do always do or that you do find to be a good general rule of thumb yeah no I, I i get it i don't think i've got personally discovered anything myself i've learned a lot and taken a lot on board if i had to say any advice to anybody is it don't start with isolated tests it's i start when i started uh started doing tests for those stuff I was writing, I started writing mostly isolated tests. They were hard to write because I was trying to mock the database and all this kind of stuff. And it's just the worst place to start. It really is. Especially when you're not really great at designing your code either, right? Absolutely, yeah. And 
you'll find that all the people who are really good at doing that design stuff all start on the outside anyway. Well, not not all, but a lot of them do start on the outside. So always start with a, a higher level test is the thing that I'd say. You know, I, I'm, I'm so guilty of this and I do it all the time. Um, but I'll open up a test test case and I'll write a test method called smoke test. And in that, I'm usually kind of like fleshing out the API, if you like. Uh, and it's my, it is my, uh, it's the, the one true happy path for this system to test. And yeah, yeah, that's like, that's the backbone of everything, right? That's funny. I do the same thing. But so I usually call my, I usually name tests like beginning with it a lot of the time, right? So it does this when this happens. So I'll always have that same smoke test, but mine is always called it works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the same thing. Uh, and the amount of times I, I literally leave it at that at that level because I'd say always start with a you know an integrated test or a, a, possibly an end to end test. But you know, as a rule of thumb, we try and have more isolated tests than we do integrated tests, or I do anyway. Uh, and the amount of times I just literally run with that one higher level test that it's called smoke test. And when your 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 class names are descriptive as well, you know, if you've I think you've talked about this before, but um, uh, verb class name, is it verbs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So registers users, you know. If you've got a, a class name called registers users and the smoke test or it works, you know, I think that's fairly descriptive as itself, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I just roll with it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the thing that I find tricky with those sorts of tests is that I find it difficult to kind of notice that point where my workflow is telling me to write the lower level tests. You know what I'm saying? Like the hardest thing for me about um, a brand new project is like, when do I write the first test? You know, uh, if I'm just scaffolding out uh, something simple with like Laravel or something and most of the work that I'm doing for the first few hours is like, oh, I'm creating some routes. Uh, you know, maybe this is like going to return this view and stuff like that. And it's really hard to figure out like when you've crossed that threshold into like, does this need a test yet? Uh, so when you're talking about testing stuff from the outside in sort of perspective, is there like a force that's exerting pressure on you to actually write those unit tests after you have like an integration test in place? Um, almost always the de- degenerative cases. So error handling, you know, um, a lot of the sort of catching and throwing of exceptions that we do as programmers, a lot of that stuff is programmer specific. You know, our stakeholders don't care about some of the stuff, but as programmers we do, you know, and a good example for me is a sort of monitoring and logging. You know, if something goes wrong, um, it might be perfectly acceptable to just show the, the end user, you know, a 500 splash page that something went wrong. That's not for me as a programmer, as a, as a maintainer of a system, perfectly acceptable because I need information about that. I need to make sure that uh, the correct exception has been thrown, which ultimately means that it's been logged somewhere for me to analyze later. And but I aren't going to be doing that from you know the outside in. I aren't going to be testing for that at the user interface level because it never really it doesn't really matter at that level. Now. It might matter at that level. If this boils down to a user experience type thing, you know, if the stakeholders are saying, look, if if someone tries to, you know, register on our site with the, a duplicate email address, we can't just show a, you know, something's gone wrong page. We need to help them. We need to, you know, coerce them into, we still want them to register with us. Do you see what I mean? 
at that point, that degenerative case of uh, a duplicate email address being used has become a feature, you know, it become a user experience thing. So that would might get an outside in, you know, a, an integrated test. But until that point, that case has, usually gets handled by me in a, a lower level isolated test. Yeah, that makes sense for sure. Uh, another one other thing that I kind of would like to get your opinion on is uh, a lot of people are starting to use tools like PHP spec uh, more these days, which is kind of like, I haven't used it a ton, but it feels like R spec for PHP, right? Um, and RSpec is obviously the dominant testing framework in the Ruby world. And the amount of people who are, you know, proponents of uh, mini test or test unit are definitely in the minority. But have you played with those sort of like spec style unit testing tools much? Do you have any opinions on those? Yeah, I mean, I, I've used RSpec, uh, not a whole lot. I've not done loads of work with it, but I have used it. Uh, I've also... I've I've used PHP spec uh, only on sort of toy projects, and I've followed the development from quite an early sort of stage. And yeah, I mean, I'm very much happy with PHP unit sort of the unit. Yeah, uh, just the, like the X unit of, flavor of a yeah those family. Um, I find a lot of the 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 one thing I like about aspect that I will say that hasn't translated across to PHP spec is a uh, context and uh, you know so yeah. It does make for it more readable. Yeah, nesting those cases. Other than that, I really don't feel like this is much of a difference. Now, with PHP spec, at least in PHP spec or PHP, you get a prophecy, which uh, does make a difference to the way at least you, you rating tests compared to PHP unit and PHP unit mocks and mockery, because it's a very it's much more opinionated, testable framework. And there are a few other things with uh, PHP spec, like it's just kind of like getting your head around the sort of the syntax and the context, you know, how you, the ob- object under test is kind of looks like the, the test object, if you like. You know, you're calling instance methods on itself all the time, but once you get over those things, uh, they just all look the same to me. Yeah, that's kind of some of the things that made me hesitant to really commit to using a tool like PHP spec, and it's just the... It feels like none of the... Well, it feels like a lot of the rules about how the programming language is supposed to work are different in PHP spec. Like, this refers to the object that I'm testing even though I'm in the test case class. Or uh, or things like... I don't know if PHP spec does this, but it's something that I don't really like about R spec is it has a lot of magic in it to try and translate English sounding assertions into checking things on methods with similar names. Like, you know, if this account should be active really translates to assert true account dot is active, right? It has this ability to, Oh, this assertion or this matcher starts with B, then we should check if that object has a method starting with is as followed by the last word that was in the, you know what I mean? Like it just seems like, like I, I get the uh, the desire for clear, readable tests, but at the same time, I think you're sacrificing some. Uh, what's the word I'm looking well, for? So, like, I feel like you're putting some indirection in. You know, you're yeah, putting magic over the top, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. And and now your tests don't really look like your actual code. Like, you can't learn what the methods that exist on your objects are. Uh, from reading your tests, like there's some an asymmetry. That's the word I was looking for between yeah, like no, I get that, what your totally. tests look like and uh, your actual classes look like. So yeah, no, that that makes sense. And uh, I mean, I've seen people when they're sort of teaching TDD type things or describing TDD things. I've seen people take code out of when, especially when you're working outside in, 
I've seen people take code out of a test method and put it into product into the production code. You know, if you uh, if you were writing um, tests for some sort of service class, and you it was this particular use case, there's a good chance that the code you've just written in your test you could literally copy paste that to be the basis of the code that's going into the your maybe your your framework controller or something that's going to be calling the service class. Whereas once you start dealing with doing those kind of magical things, um, and and this goes for other things as well, because, I mean, if you think about those magical things in RSpec and PHP spec, it's very similar to writing your own custom assertions and your own custom verifications, if you see what I mean. Uh, And it's one of the, again, it's one of those things where you're trading off um, some, if not intent, uh, some clarification in the test of how the code is used as well as what it's trying to do yeah so i guess it's just a balance like like everything else right yeah yeah i mean it's, it i feel like an, an idiot for saying it all the time but it really is isn't it everything's a trade-off you know? yeah it, actually, it really is is there so what sort of stuff are you working on these days like what are you kind of excited about especially in in the testing world uh do you know what i haven't actually done a whole lot recently i mean uh, i've had a um, so the last like maybe month or two, I've been doing a lot of ops stuff. Um, so the testing I've done there has been a bit sort of like a bit weird for me. It's not really kind of testing I normally do. I've done like some sort of smoke testing type thing. So when we deploy code now uh, to production, uh, Jenkins automatically fires off a smoke test, and it's like um, it's like the dirtiest, hackiest script testing I've done. But it is literally some of our really core features we tell it this is a this is the username and password for a user on production you know when we deploy code to production just do a quick test to make sure all this stuff still works yeah, yeah. it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I, I it kind of brings up a point of you know what are you writing your tests for and, and what are the what's the value of your test because obviously like that sort of test right uh if you want to i mean obviously it's not the same as a, a unit test or something but you're not using that to improve the design of your system you're simply using it so that you can sleep at night after you deploy <laughs> to production yeah. right well i mean definitely so it was actually a decent blog post that went around a uh, a couple of a uh, couple of uh, weeks ago and i can't remember what he called it but it was definitely something like monitoring driven design or something like that but the idea was that the tests were based around things that are happening in production. You know, so you've got all the monitoring and stuff going on in production and you could literally write tests about that stuff and that that they became part of a test suite, if you like. Uh, so there's definitely a, a trade-off there in terms of how much time you spend writing tests up front and how much time you spend monitoring and acting on things. You know, if I if I really need to get something out, I will not write tests, but then I'll be obviously be actively monitoring it once it gets out. You know, that's the way it works, isn't it? So there's a balance there, I think, as well. Yeah, for sure. I know one thing that you uh, blogged about recently that I played with a little bit after I saw was uh, this humbug, that mutation testing library for PHP. So maybe it'd be interesting to kind of talk about what mutation testing is a little bit, because it's kind of a really cool thing to play with. Yeah, it is. It's really good fun. Um, so mutation testing... Uh, so we'll start off, if you've, um, this, it's not so relevant for TDD, well, my explanation is not relevant to TDD, but if you're relevant, uh, sorry, it's very relevant to people who are doing test last, you know, so after you've written your production code, you're going to add some tests. Now, one of the things you should always do after you've written tests, you should always see a test fail. Now, if you're writing a test after the fact, chances are the test is going to pass first time. In theory, it should, you know, because you're basing your test on the code you've already written 
and tested you know, manually anyway. Now, the trick there is you usually sort of go into the production code and you change a value or you change something to force the test to fail. So essentially, you're testing your test. Now, mutation testing is doing the exact same thing I just described, but in an automated fashion on a, on a large scale. So what mutation testing does is usually it'd run your test suite, which would all pass, otherwise you don't want to be doing this at this point. And then mutation a mutation testing tool would actually go into production code, make a change to the some code somewhere, and then run your test suite again. Now if the test suite passes, that would suggest that the code that the mutation testing tool has changed is not being tested properly. Um, so there's a bit of sort of uh, linger that goes with it. So when the mutation testing tool changes the production code, that's called a mutant. And then if your test suite uh, fails, then it's said to have killed the mutant. Whereas if your test suite passes and it hasn't detected the mutant, it would say that that mutant has escaped. Uh, and all these mutations, you know, we can do dozens and dozens of these mutations on your production code. And once you you do this in sort of a mass scale, you can sort of build up some sort of measure of quality of your test suite if the mutation testing tool creates 100 mutants and your test suite only killed, sort of detects 50 percent then you've probably got some serious sort of questions to ask yourself about the quality of your test suite and it is a really interesting thing to try um i mean the thing about it is it's slow for a start you know i mean most people's test suites are quite slow anyway but actually a mutating the the production code can be difficult then running all the tests and trying to work out, you know, if that mutant was a good one or a bad one. Uh, it takes a lot of time, and you also get a, a lot of uh, false positives, which makes it sort of a, a bit of an onerous task. Um, if you're not familiar with the kind of false positives that can usually be thrown at you, it's kind of difficult to read and to understand, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool either way, though. I definitely have had fun uh, playing with it, and I know, like, when you wrote the blog post originally, it was about uh, how the, on the Aura project they were claiming like 100% test coverage and just as kind of a funny little thing. Well, let's see if I can go in and find a place where, you know, the line of code is covered by a test, but you're not testing all the different situations that could actually happen correctly, right? And you actually found a bug right pretty fast, right? So, so yeah, that was it. I mean, in 10 minutes or something. Um, so, I mean, I, I wasn't meaning to pick on the Aura project in particular, but I... I like 100% code coverage isn't a goal. It can be something that's nice to have, um, but it shouldn't be something you should strive for. And the fact, I think it might have been, been the second time I'd heard, uh, I think it was Paul Jones, the leader of the project, mentioned that, you know, 100% code coverage is like a badge of honor. And I was like, oh, come on, that's enough now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna to challenge it. And, uh, and I did. And the problem is that 100% code coverage is based on uh, what we call line coverage. So it measures that a line has been covered and that is it. Uh, there were so many more levels of coverage above line coverage, um, starting with branch coverage, which would make sure that all branches through the code have been executed, uh, then path coverage, which makes sure all combinations of branches have been executed, and then even things like conditional coverage, uh, parameter value coverage, things like that get so much so complicated. We don't have tools to measure that stuff, especially in our in our sort of community anyway. I don't even know if they exist in other communities because some of that stuff is really complicated. Yeah, for sure. I think, like, you know, you'll hear people say that no matter, you know, how you're testing your code, like, your test suite is never going to be, like, a complete 100% reliable cover every single situation that could ever happen in your application uh, because that's just not 
realistic, right? There's just so many different combinations of of situations you could run into, especially when you're trying to test, you know, all these boundary conditions and exceptional uh, circumstances. And like, I mean, you could even do something as stupid as uh, if some method takes some integer as a parameter, if you wanted to, you could hard code something into that uh, function that it doesn't work with when you pass in 1,452. So does that mean that you have to write a test for every integer from one to whatever, right? Like, of course not. That's ridiculous. But Yeah. Well, I mean, you say that, but, you know, we have things like property-based testing, which is designed for that kind of thing, you know? I mean, you, with a property-based test, you'd say, this should work for all integers under 10,000. Okay. Is that, how does that work with, like, what sort of tooling is that, does that require? Is that something built in, like PHP in it or something, or...? No, we don't really have it much in the PHP community. It's more of a functional programming thing. Um, and I, I, I'm not an expert at all. Um, so the, the, the definitive one is uh, Quick Check for Haskell. And uh, my problem with it is it sounds great, but it seems sounds great for sort of basic and primitives and simple functions. But as soon as you want to do things sort of really complicated, I, I find it hard to, to understand. Do you see what I mean? I'm trying to think of some decent examples of, of it now. Uh, I can't, but usually, so how it works is you describe a property of um, a function. So let's say um, a rand function. Uh, A a property of uh, the rand function would be that it returns integers between the two, the min and max that you pass it. Uh, So what uh, this property-based testing framework would do is you'd say, if you give it these two integers between these two ranges, I expect it to return an integer between this range. And it will go and it will probably calculate as many permutations as it can to test, you know, the function. Uh, so it's sort of generative. It's not, you're not providing it with all the permutations yourself. You're saying these are the upper and lower bounds. Go do it yourself. Yeah, that's pretty pretty clever. Yeah, I mean, the really clever stuff is when it um, it tries to work out the sort of like the lowest common denominator. So if it finds a, a failing case that should be a pass... It'll then try and simplify it as much as possible. I can't think of an example of how to explain that if that doesn't make sense. But it just kind of just tries like, to like figure out like what's the pattern here? Like why do all why do these ten numbers yeah, cause it so to the, fail? This, what do they have in common? Yeah, sort of thing. How can I how can I make this as simple as possible for the the programmer to understand? So if it finds out that it might work out that if you pass an eight as the third parameter, it seems to pa- fail a lot. So it'll then go and, you know, try as much as it can to find more failing test cases or do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and that's really clever stuff. I don't know how it works. Yeah, cool. So we've gone for quite a while. So maybe before we get going, uh, what advice would you give some to someone who's like trying to get into all this testing stuff that maybe took you a long time to figure out as someone who's uh, been doing it for quite a while now that maybe you wish someone had told you earlier? I would say, like, like I mentioned earlier, integration tests are the way to get started and in um, investing a small amount of time in sort of creating that um, test infrastructure you know the thing that creates the databases for you maybe you're investing time to set up a vagrant and provisioning so that it's easy for you to create a test environment so to make those writing those integrated tests as easy as possible because they can be difficult tests to maintain they can be difficult to write as well but just getting that infrastructure in place early uh, makes a big difference. Um, going back to the Goose book, they talk about a walking skeleton is the first thing they do. And it, and it goes back to sort of um, 
extreme programming and all those kind of things, you know, where the first thing you do is get some a system that's deploying to a production-like environment and stuff like that. Uh, I'd go with that kind of thing. And then the next sort of bit of advice is just, like, don't be afraid. Like, just trust your instincts and uh, just go with stuff. You know, if you try something, listen to the tests without sounding sort of hippie-ish and stuff and go with gut feelings, you know. You, you test out set in stone. You can come back and you can delete them. You can come back and change them. You can, you know, you can come back and write more. Just don't dwell on it too much. Don't dwell on trying to write the perfect test. Don't dwell on trying to design the perfect system. Just uh, let's get some test coverage out there and get moving on to the next feature. Awesome, man. So uh, what are the best ways for people to kind of keep up with what you're doing? Or is there anything maybe you wanted to plug or mention before we go? Um, so to keep up with me personally, I'm Dave Development on Twitter and Dave Development on quite a few other sort of internet things. If you want to keep up with me sort of uh, in the less programming sense, I run a podcast, uh, thatpodcast.io is where you can find it, or that podcast on Twitter. I do that with a, a co-host, Bo Simonson, and uh, our tagline is uh, we talk about life as uh, programmers, dads, and entrepreneurs. So you get a bit of everything in there. Awesome. I enjoy doing it. Awesome. Yeah, it's a really good podcast. I, I follow it and listen to it every time you guys put out a new episode. And it's really uh, cool to keep up with what's going on in your guys' lives, for sure. <laughs> yes, that's the feedback we get from most people. It's kind of like, it's a little bit candid. And we're just kind of honest. And we, we set out doing it as we're just chatting with each other like we would if we are in the pub or something. Yeah, for sure. Awesome, man. Well, uh, you didn't mention it, but I will say anyone... Uh, interested in reading about some of these blog posts that we talked about should check out your blog at uh, davedevelopment.co.uk right yeah that's right and uh, i uh, i owe a few more blog posts out there on testing stuff and i have a couple lined up so i'll probably try and get some get some writing done awesome man well thanks again for coming on this has been really fun i, I learned a lot and i uh, i'm glad i got to get some of your opinions on some of this stuff oh well, thanks for having me uh, you're one of my favorite sort of people to discuss this stuff with because uh you ask all the hard questions and uh that's really cool <laughs> awesome Th well thank you so uh show notes for this episode are going to be able to be found at fullstackradio.com slash episodes slash 19 if you have any uh feedback uh you can leave comments on uh the, the website itself or you can reach out on twitter if you can rate and review the show on itunes that's always helpful we can always use more uh reviews there and uh thanks again to hired for sponsoring the podcast they've been a great sponsor and if, if you're ever looking for a new opportunity then check out hired.com slash full stack radio thanks guys see you next time